The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the 14th chapter, and you may remain seated. Now large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and he turned and he said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to wage war against another king, will not sit down first and consider whether he is able, with 10,000, to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all of your possessions. The Gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. First off, I have an apology to make. Unlike the choir, I am not vested this morning, mainly because I was sweating earlier today, and Pastor Jerry and I decided, well... After looking at the liturgical rule book here at Faith, it's casual from Memorial Day, but we changed a little word, through Labor Day. (laughs) I'm sorry. We did turn the air down for you. Will you be here at 9.30? Well, if you want to go casual, you have my permission to do so. I trust all of you, after hearing last week's sermon, have been working on your table manners, especially the proper technique for moving the spoon. Yeah? Remember? As a ship plies the sea, thy spoon sails away from thee. I assume you have, because I went to Smith's to to stock up on my favorite soup, and it was all sold out. Oh, I'm just kidding. I hope you do remember, however, the brief sketch of the Pharisaic worldview and the Pharisaic agenda that I shared with you last week, and how Jesus, with his short description there in Luke chapter 14, I believe, his short description of a dinner and a host and dinner guests, in places of honor, in places of shame, was a direct challenge to the Pharisees, especially their flirting with the notion, flirting with the notion that they alone were entitled to seats of honor at that end-time banquet. In last week's sermon, I also drew on the work of Bishop N.T. Wright and pointed out that the law, the Torah, and obedience to the law was all important for the Pharisees. Torah keeping was at the center of their life because their scriptures told them that was what they must do. They had to keep the Torah with all their hearts, with all their soul, because it was an essential 
prerequisite for the coming renewal of the people, the nation, and all creation. That's what their scriptures said. In fact, if you were to ask the Pharisee to show you where in the Old Testament they got that notion, they would have pointed you to today's lesson from Deuteronomy chapter 30. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I am commanding you today by loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways, observing his commandments, decrees and ordinances, then you shall live and become numerous And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. And then the Pharisees would add, see, here we are living in the land that God promised to give to our father Abraham and his descendants. But we are not free even in our home country. We are still in exile. We are still slaves And our freedom will come from God only when we turn to him, walk in his ways, live as free people, and then he will restore us, our nation, and bless us once again. That's what he promised us long ago. And again, all of this thinking built on the book we call Deuteronomy. So now let me take you on a short tour of Deuteronomy. The book was the last book of the Torah, the Pentateuch. Four books preceded, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy, the last book of the law. And it brings those prior four books to a fitting close because in Deuteronomy we see that generation of Israelites, former slaves in Egypt, standing there with Moses, just about to step off into a new life and a new adventure in a new land, the land of Canaan. Ostensibly, the book of Deuteronomy consists of three speeches by Moses delivered to the Israelites, standing on the threshold of their new life in a new home. Moses tells them pointedly, I'm not going with you there. So in his first speech, he shares with them an important reminder. He reminds them of the gracious way God has brought them thus far. Despite constant rebellion on their part and their parents' part. And then there is a long reiteration of all of the stipulations of the covenant given to their parents out in the wilderness at Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai if you prefer. And then Moses in his closing remarks calls for the people's promise the promise of their allegiance to that covenant before they step off into that journey across the Jordan, before they enter their new home. And he does all of this with a kind of life and death urgency. This call for a covenant commitment is the climax 
of Moses' third speech, the book of Deuteronomy as a whole, and all of the Torah. Choice, choice, that word choice is the keynote of the lesson. The current generation of Israelites have a decision to make. They can choose between a few different ways of living. They can choose life and prosperity, or they can choose another path and find death and adversity. They can walk in the Lord's ways and they can thrive and they can flourish or proceed down another path, and in doing so, just find themselves in never-ending evil. They can live free or die hard. That's what Moses tells them. Now at this point I have a favor to ask of you. I want you to just let go of something. Let go of the burden of thinking of the Torah as a penal code something that can only condemn, words that only indict, an impossible standard. Rather, with the Israelites of old, think of the Torah as a map, the map of a journey, leading further and further into freedom, into happiness, into deeper and richer and godlike life. And if this helps you, listen to these words of a psalmist. Your word, that is, your Torah, is a lamp to my feet, O Lord, and a light to my path. But since we're modern people, if you prefer, think of the Torah as one of those triple A trip tickets? Have you ever used one of those things that just take you along the correct path to your destination? Traveling closer and closer to that wonderful vacation spot? That's what the Torah was for the Jews of old, a guide, a guide to help them living as free people, as whole people, Now, I have another favor to ask of you. This may be a little harder. I want you to let go of the very modern and very recent perspective of thinking of freedom. And I've used that word a number of times so far, haven't I? Thinking of freedom as consisting of just the absence of laws and regulation. Let go of that contemporary notion that freedom is built on this principle. Less law, more freedom. Less law, more freedom. No law, all freedom. Let the politicians yammer on that way. Think instead of freedom in a biblical way, a Christian way. Namely, true freedom. True freedom is the movement of human beings toward the good, good living that is, and toward God. Write that down. Because that's how the sages of old 
and many scripture writers spoke of freedom. Freedom is the movement of human beings toward the good and toward God. Laws you see in the Torah are not meant to undermine freedom. They are there to protect it, to direct one's steps further and further into freedom. Until we find our ultimate meaning, our happiness, our joy, and our perfection in God's ways. So when Moses recited those many precepts, commands, and ordinances of God's law, he was not trying to restrict that new life. He wanted those former slaves to really enjoy each other in their new home. Essentially, the precepts that he reminded them of said this, Break this Torah and things like murder and adultery and theft and fraud will be all that you will have. Break these commands. You will be enslaved once again. You will be killed. You will be exploited. You will be impoverished all over again. But this time, it will not be the Egyptians doing it to you, but you will be doing it to each other by your own hands. The Torah is really a manual for how to live in a new home, in a new place, and enjoy freedom. Well, now let's return to the Pharisees. As I said last week, Jesus' frequent and harsh words toward the Pharisees was due in part to their having boxed in the abundant grace and righteousness of God, identifying themselves as the only worthy recipients of that grace and righteousness. And as I shared with you last week, they were able to do that because they engaged in a selective, very selective reading of their scriptures. So it should come as no surprise to you that Jesus was greatly troubled by the fact that the Pharisees were also engaged in a very selective reading of the Torah itself. Oh, they loved their favorite parts and had their favorite parts because those favorite parts helped them maintain their Jewish identity, gave them a wonderful sense of being and purpose over against all of those Gentile sinners that surrounded them. Again, the old Merle Haggard lyrics come to mind. We don't worship demons and false gods in Judea. We don't visit temples of other gods and goddesses like the Romans love to do. We don't take each other's wives like the Greeks are prone to do. We don't eat meat grilled on pagan altars. We still honor our parents in Judea. We don't steal from each other like the Gentile tax collectors do. For us Jews here in Judea, keeping the Sabbath and going to the temple is the biggest thrill of all. These precepts from the Torah gave them their identity, brought them comfort, 
Because they could say, we're different, we're different, we're different. We're special, we're special, we're special. But here's the problem once again. Though the Pharisees followed their favorite precepts with their whole heart, like keeping Sabbath, like keeping kosher, like honoring parents, like observing Sabbath, those very basic commands of the covenant. If you look at the book of Deuteronomy, that rather short list are just very basic, basic moral and religious precepts. The kind of stuff you teach children as they sit on your lap. That, in fact, is what the book of Deuteronomy says. So when they said to the world, we keep all ten, we keep all ten. That was the equivalent of saying, we keep, we keep all the wonderful things we were told to do and not do in kindergarten. In Jesus' eyes, the whole Pharisaic program was mere child's play. Kids' stuff. Only little baby steps on the road to life and happiness, the good, and God. The Pharisees, in Jesus' eyes, were kindergarten cops. Listen to these two short readings. Woe to you scribes, you hypocrites. Yes, you pay tithes of mint, dill, and cumin, but you have disregarded the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Kid stuff. And then here's another short story. He was sitting out on a journey and a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he, the man, said to him, Teacher, I have kept all of these things from kindergarten on up. And then looking at him, Jesus felt love for him and said to him, Well now, there's only one more thing for you to do. Move on up a few grades. Step into high school. Be a man. And go and sell all that you possess 
and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. What is Jesus saying in these two passages vis-a-vis the Pharisaic program? It's simply this. Get real. Grow up. Move on down the road. Step up into adulthood. Step into freedom. Deeper, richer, fuller, more joyful life. And you know what? Just a few centuries later, a father of the Christian church, the great St. Augustine of Hippo, said pretty much the same thing to his fellow Christians. If you lived in his day and attended his church and you said to him, Pastor, I have kept all of the commands since my youth, he would have looked at you with love and he would have replied, Oh, thank the Lord. And congratulations for not growing up and becoming a criminal. But now let's move on. Let's move up. Let's talk about the adult stuff. The harder stuff. The weightier things. Let's talk about the commandment to love. Even enemies. In a nutshell, Deuteronomy is a book focused on a journey, one that began long ago in slavery and then continues on into freedom. And it's clear from Moses' retrospective that the journey, the journey was indeed a journey from slavery and death into life and freedom and happiness. And he reminds that current generation of Israelites, your parents sometimes took the wrong path. Sometimes they followed sidetracks into dead ends. And so very early in Deuteronomy, Moses says this, you must be careful to do as the Lord has commanded you. You shall, you shall not turn. Turn to the right or to the left. You must follow exactly the path that the Lord your God has commanded you. That motif of two paths, two ways, is a common one in Scripture. It's even found in early Christian writings. One such writing begins with these words. There are two ways. Two ways. One of life, one of death. And there is a great difference between the two ways. So my friends, just as Moses reminded the Israelites and just as Jesus told the young man, Move on, move on, move on into your freedom, into greater joy, into greater happiness. Walk in the light, follow the clearly marked road of life. I say to you, no turning left, 
which the NASCAR drivers can only do. No turning to the right, as Formula One drivers sometimes do on road courses. Just go straight ahead. Go straight, go straight. Make your way into that life where you are indeed free and closer to God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.